Good morning, Southbridge. It's great to gather together to worship Jesus together. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you. Thanks so much for coming out and uh, worshiping Jesus at a movie theater. Uh, we know that for some of you, that was a step of faith in and of itself. Like, what's going to happen there? What are they going to do? And so we want to just take a moment and just say thanks. Thanks for coming. And I want to welcome you, and I'd love to ask you if you wouldn't mind, inside your worship program, there's a little card. There was an insert in there that we call a connection card. If you'd fill that out, um, that would be a, a wonderful blessing to us. If you're a first-time guest, we ask you to take out the first-time guest kiosk, or if you've never filled a card out before. Maybe it's your fourth time. You've never filled a card out before. Take it out there. We want to give you a gift. Um, it's not the popcorn box. There's something in addition to that we want to give you. And we also make a, a donation to a ministry because you've filled that card out, and it's a ministry that rescues people out of human trafficking. So if you would fill that card out, turn that in, uh, you'll be a blessing to someone else today as well. And also if you're a second-time guest, if it's your second time today, um, or maybe filled the card out last time and it was your third time, whatever, but it's your second time filling out the card, if you would fill the card out, just drop it in the offering box on your way out. We're not asking you to give any money. If you're a guest today, we don't want you to give money. Um, but if you would, drop that card in the offering box and just let us know that you're back. If we can do anything to serve you, pray for you, get you connected, tell you anything else about the church, we'd love to be able to do that as well. And so if you'd please do that, that'd be great. And while people are filling that out, just tell our, our Southbridge family as a whole, um, those of you who've been here more than a couple times, inside your worship program today, there was a little card um, that's an invite card, not the connection card, but a little almost business card size. And on it says, what's next? That's a series that we're going to be starting, not next week, next week's Labor Day, the week after that. And we give you that card because a lot of people think about coming back to church in the fall or coming to church. Maybe they moved to the area, they moved here this summer, whatever it is. And so we oftentimes see uh, a lot of guests come in September and October in the fall. We want to give you that as a tool to be able to invite people. So when you go to lunch today or a neighbor or a coworker, or maybe a person you've been praying for that would come to Christ, you use that as a tool um, to be able to invite them. We're going to do a three-week series called What's Next. We're going to talk about what's next for us as a church, what's next for us individually, what's next for us relationally. Um, and then we're going to jump into another series after that. Also on September 7th, which is going to be the first day of that series, we're going to do a special time together. It's a kickball and uh, dominate our children and some kickball for a little while and then uh, have a potluck type, type style food together and hang out with each other after church on the 7th. So we'd love to have you here for that and you can invite your friends uh, to come to that as well. But today what we're going to do is we're going to continue in the series we've been doing through Matthew chapter 6. We've been doing this series called Teach Us to Pray. And so we're going to jump back into that. I'm going to pray for us. And uh, then we'll open up the scriptures together. So let me pray. Father, we thank you so much um, that we get to gather together with your people. And we thank you for guests that come. And we thank you for all the different things that are going on um, that you use to point us to your son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes they're difficult things in our lives. And sometimes they're um, very exciting things in our lives. And so whether it's somebody that's found out that they're having a baby or somebody that's miscarried or whether it's a uh, marriage that's just happening, or whether it's a marriage that's falling apart, God, we know that you can use all those things for your glory, and I pray you take all the circumstances that are happening in our lives, weave them together right now, somehow supernaturally through my words, speak healing for those who need to hear healing, speak challenge and confrontation for those who need to be confronted, God, speak into our hearts and our lives, and as we open up your word, renew our minds and transform us into the people you want us to be, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, today we're talking about an interesting topic. It's one of those things that's far easier to receive than it is to give. And if you think about it, there are a lot of things in life that are that way. They're fun to get. They're oftentimes hard to give. Think about money, for instance. Uh-oh, we're in church. You're talking about money. That's right. Here we go. Uh, think about money. Oftentimes, uh, it's easy to receive money, but for many of us, even those of us who enjoy giving, there's a difficulty in giving it away at a certain level. And just think about if you were to receive a large sum of money, you probably would receive it, right? If someone came up to you in the lobby and said, you know what, I was looking for somebody who was wearing your color shirt today, and here's a bazillion dollars. How many people would say no to that money? In case you're... Yep. 
Can I get an amen? Oh, so, no, no, no. We, we, we have no problem receiving it. I was reading this week about people who receive inheritances, unexpected inheritances oftentimes. And I read about one guy in Portugal, which apparently in Portugal, it's actually rare to even have a will. But this guy had an estate. He was a wealthy guy. He wrote a will, and he gave his estate, his entire estate, to 70 different strangers. Two years before he died, he had gone and written this will, and he pulled out a phone book and randomly selected names from the phone book to give his money away to. He gave away an apartment, gave away a house, gave away money. And it was really interesting. As I read that, I didn't see anything about any of the 70 people giving the money back. Now I just couldn't. (laughs) Please don't. No, no, no. But can you imagine what it must have been like to have a lawyer show up on your door, some person you've never heard of, never heard from, and he wants to give you money, or he wants to give you an apartment, or he wants to give you a house, and you'd think it was a joke at first. There's no way, but you'd probably receive it. It's easier to receive money than oftentimes is to give it. There was another story I saw of a woman. She was 17, 18 years old, a young woman in Ohio who had a regular customer who would come in. She was a waitress, and she'd wait on his table. They befriended each other. He was 82 years old was a widower, didn't have any kids, so obviously didn't have any grandkids. When he died, he left her $500,000. That's quite a tip. $500,000. And she used the money, she invested it, and she lived off the the interest from that through college and paid for college and didn't touch the principal. But she took it. There's two guys that I saw in Budapest. They received, they had a grandmother they had never even met. They received billions, with a B, of dollars from her. They were homeless guys. They had a charity worker come to them because a lawyer was looking for these guys from the way that they do stuff there, of being able to search uh, records of who were the, the relatives, whether there was a will or not. It didn't matter. They were the relatives, and so they would get this money. And so they had to be told they were rich. They received the money, though. <laughs> these were guys that were living in a cave, and they were selling tin in order to get enough money to put a meal together, and they had billions of dollars given to them. I saw another one that was a 17-year-old young man. His name was Joshua. Joshua had only met his grandfather a handful of times in his life, but when his grandfather died, he loved his grandson anyways, and uh, he gave him an 80-acre farm and a 36-acre island. And what was interesting about that story was that on that island, the grandfather had actually buried a treasure, and it was jewels and relics, and I'm reading it, and they're talking all about like searching the island, how they don't have a map, they're going to try and find this treasure, and I just thought to myself, you just got an island! Like, who cares if there's a treasure on it? You own an island, man. And he received it. He took it. Uh, probably one of the weirdest ones that I read when I was reading these inheritance stories was of a woman. She, her nickname was the Queen of Mean, and she's a real estate uh, mogul in New York City and a socialite and involved in politics and all that kind of stuff. But she had millions of dollars, and she gave it away to various... She wrote out a couple relatives, and the article talked about that, but m- most of the relatives got some amount of money. The most any human being got, yes, I did say that, the most any human being got was $10 million. She left to her terrier, little dog, $12 million. Now, I'm sure relatives were upset that the dog got more money than they got, and all that stuff happened, and that's all, you can unpack all that psychologically if you want to, but none of the relatives gave their money back. It's easy to receive money, and so some of you maybe you've even fantasized at one point. What if just somebody gave me a bunch of money, a random person from the phone book, some relative I barely know, some guy who shook my hand one time in public, I didn't realize he went back and changed his will. And so he gives you an island or gives you a bunch of money. What would you do with it? And, and probably most of us wouldn't have a problem receiving it. But it's the giving it that's the difficult part. And as followers of Jesus Christ, 
We know that we're commanded to give. And Christians debate about whether they're supposed to tithe or not. We see the tithe in the scriptures before we even have the law. And so some people say it's because of the law we don't have to do it. Abraham did it before there ever was a law. He was tithing. It's giving a tenth back, 10% of whatever we get. We give back just as a way to acknowledge none of this stuff is mine. It's just a way to demonstrate, God, I, I believe that this is all yours. You've given to us. I'm giving it back to you without me having my control all over it and all that stuff. And then some of you, you enjoy giving. And so you give above and beyond the tithe. That's called almsgiving in the New Testament, where you'll give to the needy, or you'll support missionaries. And so that's above and beyond. You'll give, even beyond the 10% you give back, you have a joy in doing that. And so some of you, you love giving. It's fun to give, feeding people. I know many of you through our church has done some stuff with Compassion International. We'll give to that. And some of you are involved in fighting human trafficking and, and all those different things. And you love to invest in that. But even you probably have a threshold. There's some level, there's some spot where giving becomes uncomfortable, where it's more difficult. You could call it sacrificial. Maybe it starts to attack one of our idols. Maybe it attacks our security, our comfort, our power, our reputation, something in our lives that we don't want to mess with. And so it's one of those things that's easier to receive than it is to give. Today we're talking about one of those things. It's easier to receive than it is to give, but we're not talking about money. And some of you said, whew. We're talking about forgiveness. Who doesn't want to be forgiven? We've sinned against the God of the universe who created us, the almighty maker of heaven and earth, who's holy, righteous, and just, and he offers us forgiveness. Who doesn't give me that, and I wronged someone else? I want them to forgive me. I've offended them. I've did something. I hurt them, and I want their forgiveness. But then someone sins against me, and it's more difficult, isn't it? Today we're going to talk about God's provision, his ultimate provision that's provided through his son, Jesus Christ, his forgiveness If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, where we've been for the past several weeks, as we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer and doing this series called Teach Us to Pray. And if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and join me there. We're going to read verses 5 through 15 in just a moment. But let me remind you what's happening here, because in studying the Bible, context is key. You know, in real estate, it's location, location, location. In Bible study, it's context, context, context. You've got to know what's happening around a passage so you don't make the Bible say what you want it to say. And what's happening in this passage is a sermon that Jesus preaches. Some of you have paper Bibles that you're looking at, old school, like I'm holding up here. And a bunch of the letters are in red. It's Jesus preaching. He preaches on all kinds of stuff in this one sermon. The beginning of chapter 5, we know he's talking to his followers, not just to everybody, to his disciples. And he talks about how to be blessed. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. He talks about being salt and light, what it is, our mission as followers of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the law, the murder, adultery, divorce, making promises, an eye for an eye, love for enemies, giving, financially giving to the needy, fasting, treasure in heaven, storing up treasure in heaven, having an eternal perspective, not worrying, judging others, the narrow door. He talks about all kinds of things in this sermon where we're jumping in at, so he's talking about how to pray, and he's teaching his disciples how to pray. I'll review some of the stuff we talked about in our series, just as we read through the passage. Let's read through it together. It says in verse 5, and when you pray, and so Jesus is talking to his followers. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, you should pray. He assumes we pray, and when you pray, do not, don't do it like this, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men, and we've seen that the issue here was not the location of the prayer, but the motivation of the prayer. Their desire was the praise of men, and they received it, and that's all they get. They forfeit their eternal rewards because they're seeking the praise of men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. Verse 6 says, but, contrast, when you pray, as my disciples, do it this way. Go into your room, close the door, 
And pray to your Father, relational language, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. There's a reward for prayer. It's Him. You get God. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And, and we pause right there, and we talked about the first week. Now, if He already knows what we need before we ask Him, why are we praying? And see, a lot of times the way we pray is it's just like we think prayer is just communicating with God, like we're updating Him. Here's how things are going with this situation. Here's what's happening here. I could use some healing over there. I got a friend who, and if you could do this, and by the way, this, is, this could be a lot easier. I'd love to be more comfortable here. And, and we kind of, it's almost like he doesn't know the information. What's foundational to this whole series and foundational to understanding prayer is this. Prayer is not just communication with God. It is communication with God for the sake of communing with God. Amen. And so that we'd connect with him. He knows our needs. Now, there are certain needs he won't meet unless we ask him. James chapter 4, verse 2, you have not because you ask not. But the reason why he wants to talk to you about your needs isn't because he doesn't know them. It's because he wants to commune with you. I love the quote I read to you the first week we were in this series by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It says that man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face, heart to heart, connected with God. See, prayer isn't just communicating with God. It's communicating with God for the sake of communing with God. It's easy to communicate. You can send someone a text message. You can send someone an email. It's the connecting that's crucial to relationship. And prayer is very relational, as we see when we look at this prayer. Next, we talk about this prayer. Verse 9 says this, and this then is how, not what. This is how you should pray. It'd be ironic to pray this prayer mindlessly, repeatedly. Considering the context. Don't babble on like the pagans. Don't think because you're many words you're going to be heard. Don't think because you follow the right formula that it's going to get unlock some secrets. And sometimes books are written that way. It's not what you should pray. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. And so we get an introduction in this prayer. The very first thing we see is it's relational because it's our Father we're praying to. It's not our Holy One in heaven, our Just One in heaven, our Righteous One in heaven. All those things could have been said. But Jesus is showing us we have a father, and he is a perfect father. So whatever your father was like, good dad, bad dad, we're talking about a perfect father who's loving, who cares, who knows your needs, and can be trusted. And he's accessible all the time. Our father in heaven. And then we get six petitions. We've covered the first three so far in this series. We'll talk about those real quick. Hallowed be your name. Meaning separate, different, highly valued, treasured, set apart, holy. In other words, we live for the glory and the fame of your name, not our own. This was foundational to the rest of the prayer because everything else is for the fame of his name. Your kingdom come. His kingdom is where his rule and his reign can be found. Lord willing in your life, if you're a believer and you're praying this prayer, but also his second coming, we want Jesus to come back. Your will be known. Paying attention? That's not what it says. Your will be done. Oftentimes we want to know God's will. As followers of Jesus Christ, we should be praying that we would do God's will. And how would we do it? On earth as it is in heaven, perfectly. Because we care about what you command. We care about what you expect. We care about what you desire. We want to do what you desire. And those first three all have to do with God. His name, his kingdom, his will. These next three all have to do with our needs. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 13, we'll talk about more next week. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Then look at verses 14 and 15. They're interesting. 
of the prayer in all six of the requests that are mentioned, this is the only one that has a commentary on it. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That's verse 14. Verse 15 says the same thing, only in the negative. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. We're going to talk about today the fourth and fifth requests there. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us as we forgive those who have debts against us, trespass against us, sin against us. You've probably heard many different versions if you've heard this prayer. And both are talking about the same thing, God's provision. It's God's provision of forgiveness. It's God's provision of the bread. And so what are we talking about when we talk about the bread? The bread is our physical needs. Martin Luther believed that it was every physical need. It wasn't just our food. And so that means our medical needs, our shelter needs, our clothing needs, our food needs. Many commentators have pointed out, though, that we're to pray here for our needs, not our greeds. (laughs) I had one person I read who said, notice we're praying for our daily bread, not our daily dessert, which is oftentimes how we would pray as Americans. Because think about where we're at, and I'm going to tell you you're rich, but everyone, whenever I say that you're rich, everyone always thinks, well, I'm not rich. And you think about somebody you know that has more money than you. We're all rich. I don't care if you make $15,000, $150,000, a million dollars a year. I don't care what you make a year. You live in this country, you're rich. You're richer than two-thirds of this world, and you're certainly richer than most people Jesus had in mind in this passage of Scripture. We have so much food, we freeze food. Like, think about that. That's kind of funny. I couldn't possibly eat it fast enough, so I've got to freeze it. We've got weeks, months, sometimes years worth of food in your house. Got a pantry full. So then for us to pray for our daily bread... Many times as Americans, we think, well, I don't, I don't really need to pray for that. Maybe put some chocolate on top, but I don't, I don't need it. I mean, the bread's here. Why would we pray this? One, we're praying for all of our needs, all of our physical needs, and it's okay to pray for your physical needs. Two, notice it doesn't say, God, give me this day my daily bread. It says, give us our daily bread. And so what you're doing when you pray this prayer is you're actually unifying yourself with every believer, every follower of Jesus Christ around the world. Think about that for a minute. What about those believers in Iraq right now? So you're praying that they would have the same food, same full stomachs that you're going to have today. You're praying they would have the same shelter, the same medical care, the same safety, the same security, the physical needs. Their needs would be us, Give us today our physical needs, Father. We're praying for our needs, though, not our greeds. See, oftentimes our problem is we're praying for the dessert-type stuff. That's what we really want. And you could get all of that. But if you didn't have the next part of this provision, what good is that? You're like a lamb being flat fattened for slaughter. If you have all of your physical needs met, the food is there, the house is taken care of, but you haven't received forgiveness, you're getting ready for the day of judgment, and you're just getting fat. And it's also interesting in this prayer, in this section of the Lord's Prayer, The first three petitions, the first three requests, your name be hallowed, the kingdom come, your will be done, all stand independently. They're just statements that are there. The next three are connected by a little word. It's the word and. The NIV didn't reveal it to us, but English Standard Version shows it. Different versions, Revised Standard, New American Standard probably all show it. The word is there because these things are united. The provision of bread and the forgiveness are united with one another. Because the provision of bread, that's not enough. You need the forgiveness. English Standard Version says it like this, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as, in the same way, we forgive those who sinned against us. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we must pray for God's ultimate provision of his forgiveness. 
That's our first point today. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must pray for God's ultimate provision, which is forgiveness. And I'm not just talking about at the point of salvation. This is a prayer that's given to his followers after they've come to follow him. These are disciples. He's talking to his disciples here, teaching them how to pray. And it's crucial because what happens if we don't deal with sin is that our prayer lives are broken. So think about our context. We're talking about a prayer here, just not just about the topic of forgiveness in prayer. And so let me read you some things that the Bible says about sin and prayer. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Those are Old Testament, Scott. Well, let me read you this one. James chapter 4, verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That's sin. Selfishness. That you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. For your greeds. Even in our own prayers we're sinning. And so today, in order for us to understand forgiveness, we've got to talk about sin. Which I realize is not a popular topic. Not even in church is it a popular topic. Most people, when they come to church, they want to be encouraged. Um, They want to know how to rise up above their circumstances, how they can have success in life, how they can feel better about themselves, prove my self-esteem, whatever stuff. We come, we want to, you know, God's favor on me in some way. I remember one time, um, so you can pay attention to who you're walking out next to on the way out of church today. I remember one time walking out of church and walking out behind a lady, and uh, she was talking. I was probably eavesdropping, but today's message is on forgiveness, so here we go. Um, I'm walking out, and she's talking. She goes, I didn't think that's what church was going to be like. I thought you came to church. To be encouraged. We must have talked about sin that day. We don't even want to talk about sin at church. Well, I'll let you in a little secret. Maybe you're a guest today. We've talked about sin before. This isn't the only time. Um, but we're going to talk about sin today because here's why. You have to understand not just that sin exists, not just that sin is wrong, not just that you sin against a holy God, not any of this. You've got to understand the darkness, the depravity, the dirtiness, the wretchedness, the despicableness of your own personal sin. Not just those people out there that sin. Of your sin, or else you'll never understand forgiveness. And so what happens for many of us in our own personal theologies is that we have such a light view of sin that we have a cheap view of forgiveness. Because what we oftentimes do with our sin is we try to sentimentalize it. We try to minimize it. We try to distance ourselves from it. We try to deny it. We We make it smaller than what it actually is so we don't really have to deal with it. And in which case, what we do is we make God's forgiveness cheap. It's almost like when we ask God for forgiveness, we think, well, just look the other way, God. Like, don't pay attention to this. Or as Disney's made famous, God, just let it go. Just let the sin go. It doesn't make it cheap, though. It killed his son. You killed his son. Your sin killed his son. It's a big deal. Our sin is dark. It's deep. It's dirty. It's disgusting. It's repulsive. Until you grasp that for yourself, you'll have no idea the forgiveness that you've been given. Instead, what we try to do is we try to minimize, we try to distance, we try to deny it. I see it with my own kids. It's easier to talk about my kids' sin than my own, so I'll do that today. Uh, I see it with my own kids and the way that they sin, and I get a different perspective on their sin because I get to watch them and how they respond. A lot of times I'm doing it with my own sin. And I remember this week, uh, we're in temporary offices at a church right now, and so we set up and tear down on Sunday mornings. We're setting up and tear down uh, during the week. My desk right now is a lifetime. It's a plastic table, and I'll bring my books that I need uh, in and out of the office, in and out of my house. And I had a bag full of the books that I thought I needed to study for this message at the back door of my house. I picked it up, brought it into the office. I get it out. I stick my hand in the bag, and it's stuck in there to something really sticky and gross. 
Okay, what is it? I pull out the folder. It's got some notes for this message on it. And there's bubble gum stuck to it. And it's kind of, it's not, it wasn't like hard. Like you can find hard bubble gum. That's no big deal. But it was like still gooey. So I don't know if this just happened or what. And there's a book in there that I'm reading for this. And the pages are stuck together. It's on the cover. So I start wiping it off with a piece of paper. I get it on the lifetime table. And then like if you go in there today on that lifetime table and you stick your arm in the wrong spot, it still sticks. Do you ever have that? Just gross. And so the kids did this. I know. They're not supposed to have the gum. They're chewing the gum. They hey, we're back by the back door, so they stuck it somewhere that no one would see them, right? <laughs> well, I didn't think that much of it because I didn't remember to bring it up on Monday. But a few days later, we're having dinner as a family, and, and I said, girls, you know what happened to me on Monday is I went to pull my stuff out of my bag, and there was all this gum on it. Do you know what happened to that moment? It, it, the way I remember it is like they just all started pointing fingers in different directions. My oldest, Ella, said, Ava did it. Ava says, Janie did it. Janie says, Ella did it. Ella said, no, it's the baby. And, so, and all this stuff starts happening. They're just all talking at the same time. And then there start to become stories happening. I can't even remember all the details, but it's something like, well, I didn't steal the gum. Someone gave me the gum. And here's where the gum came from. And I didn't really, I just tasted it. I didn't really chew it. You know, and it's, like, it's like, they start minimizing and rationalizing and justifying. Does that sound familiar at all? Remember in Genesis chapter 3, God, it, it wasn't me. It's the woman you gave me. And we keep doing it. And so it's not going to hurt anybody, right? Who's going to know? You ever say any statements like this? I'm not going to, I'm just looking. Or I'm not going to stay the night. I'm just, just going to go inside for a little while. Or as long as I don't cross this line, and then it's this line, and then it's this. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about sexual. It doesn't matter if we're talking about integrity. It doesn't matter if we're talking about finances. It's not my fault. And these circumstances, and it wasn't my fault, officer. I've said that one. <laughs> We do it. We all do it. And we minimize our sin. And maybe it's oftentimes we think other people, there's, there's always somebody, it's like how we don't think we're rich. We always find somebody worse than us. And so you'll say some statement about some others, at least I'm not a, either I've never murdered anyone, or if you have, at least I'm not a serial killer, or if you are, at least I didn't. And we can always find somebody. But you start thinking about it, yeah, you have. You've done all this stuff. The Bible says that you, you, you're a murderer if you hate someone First John says that, and we all know that murderers don't go to heaven. That's what the Bible says. It says that if we're angry at someone, that we're in danger of hell. In this very sermon, in Matthew chapter 5, you go back one chapter, it's Jesus still preaching the same sermon. The chapters were put in there later. Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 and 22 through 22 says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not inherit the kingdom of heaven. For the people who heard those words, they'd be like, no one can do that. He was pointing them to his own righteousness. He goes on, he says this, You've heard that it was said to people long ago, Do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment again. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, it's a Bible trash talk, don't worry about it. Anybody who says, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, insert idiot, moron, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, I'll run every once in a while. I've been running before on the side of the road. Somebody comes flying by like they don't even notice I'm there. And I think, you idiot. If that were murder, I would be a serial killer. And so would some of you. And the Bible says that it's as though it is. But at least I've never, well, yeah, you have. What about adultery? Most people, most people believe that it's wrong to cheat on your spouse or to have sex with someone else that you're not married to. And most people think it's wrong. The Bible says, in fact, read this sermon, 
that if you lust after someone in your heart, it's though you committed adultery. The extra look, that extra three-second glance, that spouse of someone else's that you've thought about, that's adultery according to God. And even if you, even if you try to rationalize and justify, and, and, and we got to believe, you got to ask yourself, do I really believe the Bible or not? Because a lot of times we just explain passages away. And you say, well, it's just a teaching point, Scott. And it doesn't, it's not the same. We all know it's not the same. Well, the Bible says it's the same. But we all, we'll rationalize, we'll justify it. Even if you do that, you know what else the Bible says? God talks about himself as a husband for his people. And he says, when we have idols, which an idol is this. It's not just a little statue. An idol is any time we have something that's taking the place of God in our lives. Something that drives our thoughts, dictates our actions. The thing, kind of thing that we want to protect. Whether it's reputation, it can be our church attendance, it can be like good things, it can be your, your job. But then we make it more important than it is and it drives our life. It's what we it's consume our thoughts. God says that's spiritual adultery. And that we prostitute ourselves to that God. So even if you don't think by the other stuff, you still do it. All of us think lying's wrong. I'm pretty, that's pretty universal. In fact, you find that in people have never even heard anything of the Bible before. You don't want people to lie to you. Um, you don't want your kids to lie to you. You don't want your kids to hang out with friends that lie to them. And you don't want them to become liars. You don't want your spouse to lie to you. You don't want your friends to lie to you. You don't want to be around people that lie. How many of you have lied? And all God's people said, Amen. ah, we all did. Whoever didn't talk just now, you're a liar. We all do it. So let's just summarize. You're murdering, adulterating liars. And even if you justify and rationalize all that away, you murdered Jesus. That's a big deal. So our sin, it's dark, it's deep, it's dirty. And some of you have been around church, you say, well, but Jesus took care of it. We sang nothing but the blood. He's already taken care of all that. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is true, judicially. That is true from a courtroom sense. When we're talking about God as judge, that is true. But notice in our prayer, context, context, context. Notice in our prayer that we're praying to not our judge who art in heaven, talking about a relationship not talking about courtroom setting i'm not talking about whether you're still his child we're not talking about that we're talking about the relationship he's not listening he's not hearing he turned his ear from you the relationship's been severed it's been broken it's our father that we're talking about here not our judge it's a difference judge father a lot of times we get blurry in our theology because we start mixing these things up it's our father we've broken that relationship see i'm not i'm mad at my kids because i had gum i can get gum off it's just annoying well, when there's deception, the relationship gets broken. Because now not only can I not trust you, I can't hear what you're saying because I don't know if I believe what you're saying, and I can't speak to you because I don't know if I can trust you with these things. It's a broken relationship. And the, the Bible says that we oftentimes do is there's no one that's without sin. John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. We often quote verse 9. Verse 8 says that if we claim to be without sin, we're a liar. We deceive ourselves. We distance, we deny, we minimize, we rationalize, we justify. We think our sin's not that big of a deal, and so we don't really have that much sin. It's those people out there, and it's, it's my spouse, and it's my kids, and it's my other... It's our sin. I have sin. You have sin. And it's dirty, and it's dark, and it's broken. But we have a God who forgives. Sinclair Ferguson said this. So the holiness of God teaches us there's one way to deal with sin radically, seriously, painfully, and constantly. That's how. If you do not live that way, where you're radically, seriously, painfully, and constantly dealing with sin, you do not live in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. 
the Bible says this in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one. But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. The next verse in that first John passage, if we confess our sins, if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar, you deceive yourself. If you confess, to confess means this, not to just state it out loud. To confess means you see your sin the way God sees it. Repulsive, dirty, death-infusing. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins, and he will purify us, he will cleanse us. Why do we need to be purified? Because we're dirty. Why do we need to be cleansed from all of our unrighteousness? Even in the Old Testament, we see this about our God. But you are a forgiving God, Nehemiah 9.17. You are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. See, God forgives. Do you need forgiveness? He offers it. In fact, Jesus makes forgiveness radical. If you look at Jesus in the New Testament, who are God's people? They're not the good people. In case you're wondering, it's the forgiven people. Just we're reading the book of Matthew. You know who Matthew is? Matthew is a tax collector. Everyone hates tax collectors. They steal money, they're liars, they profit, they live in comfort based on your back and your work. And so everyone hated tax collectors. Everyone knew they were deceptive. No one wants to be around a liar. Jesus is picking 12 of his closest guys he calls Matthew. It's called Levi at the time. And then you know what the religious people say? What are you doing with these kinds of people? These are the forgiven people. John chapter 8, the famous story, a woman caught in adultery. Comes before Jesus, there's a bunch of guys that are ready to cast stones at her because that's what the, the rules of their time said to do, someone that was caught in that way. Jesus says to the crowd, well, he who is without sin cast the first stone. They all drop their stones, they all leave. There was somebody there who didn't have any sin. Do you know who it was? It was Jesus. But he didn't cast a stone. Do you know what the word forgive means? It means to hurl away. But he didn't take her sin lightly. He didn't just let it go. He didn't just look the other way. You know what he says to her? Go and sin no more. He could have added, I'm about to go die for that. Let's not add to it. In Luke chapter 7, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. Luke chapter 7, Jesus is having a meal with a celebrity religious leader at the time. His name's Simon. He's a Pharisee. And while they're having the meal, a woman comes in who's a woman with a reputation. And she comes in and she starts to anoint Jesus' feet. And Simon starts to think to himself, and Jesus tells us what his thoughts were. Interesting, he knows that, which makes, means we're all in trouble. Uh, says that Simon was thinking to himself, if Jesus, who calls himself a rabbi, knew who this woman was and what kind of woman she is, he wouldn't let her touch him. And then you know what Jesus does? He grabs her face. He touches her. He says, Simon, the people who love much are the people who have been forgiven much. Have you been forgiven? You love you take a guy like Peter. Peter, after his denials, then becomes the guy that God uses to start the church. You look at Paul. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He's persecuting Christians to their death and having them imprisoned for following God. And then God uses them to perhaps be the most effective missionary that's ever walked the earth. See, God's people are not the good people. They're the forgiven people. Do you grasp your forgiveness? Here's the other thing, and this is the scary part. Forgiven people must forgive. Forgiven people must forgive. Let me read you that prayer again. It's kind of scary, actually. Because we say, forgive us our debts. Now, that word debts is used there. He's talking about sins. 
and sins, uh, the common, there's about five words in the New Testament for sin, the Greek words that are used. And the one that's used in Luke's prayer is hamartia. hamartia. It's, uh, it means to fall short of God's perfect standard, and there it's translated, forgive us our sins. Some of you have maybe heard it translated, forgive us our trespasses. Here, um, it's translated, forgive us our debts. Same idea of sin, but it's got another nuance to it. The nuance is, God, you're owed something. Because of your holiness, because of your righteousness, because of your justice, you're owed perfect worship. You're owed perfect obedience. But we can't do that. We, we don't do that. No one does it. And so we have a debt that we can't possibly repay. So you know what we need? We need your forgiveness, the forgiveness of Christ. And it says here, forgive us our debts as, keyword in the same manner, just like we also have forgiven our debtors. Charles Spurgeon says that this is when some people read the Lord's Prayer, this is a death warrant for them. Unless you've forgiven others, he says, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. Because you're asking God not to forgive you. Forgive me just as I forgive other people, but I'm not forgiving him. Mm, So you don't want me to forgive you. St. Augustine, famous name in Christianity, so this is the terrible petition because it's so terrifying. Jay Packer brings it to light, I think, when he says this. I'll read you this one. Those who live by God's forgiveness must imitate it. One whose only hope, the forgiven, one whose only hope is that God will not hold his faults against him forfeits his rights to hold others' faults against them. How can you as a forgiven person then not forgive someone? It doesn't even make sense. John Stott says it like this, Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, our own sin, the darkness, the depravity, the dirtiness, the repulsiveness of our sin, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. They're small. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we've minimized our own sin. If, but I could never forgive this, God. And then we got this commentary down in verses 14 and 15 that we read earlier. I'll read again. The positive, for if you forgive men when they sit against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Verse 15, but if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Scary verse. One of those verses that you're hoping I'll explain away and how it doesn't apply to us, right? Or if we read the Bible, we don't necessarily say this consciously, but in our subconscious, we think to ourselves, if I just kind of move, just kind of move past this far enough and fast enough, then I can forget about that. And hopefully God will kind of forget about that and it'll just kind of be gone. Like it's, just, it's not just mentioned once in the Bible. Not that that would matter. If it was mentioned once, that still counts. A lot of times we think, well, this has got to mean something other than this. And, and certainly we don't earn our forgiveness. No, we don't. Jesus earned our forgiveness. But what we're showing when we don't forgive is either we haven't been forgiven Or best case scenario, most gracious explanation is we don't understand the forgiveness that we have been given. Remember this verse was driven home to me. If we don't forgive, we won't be forgiven. When I heard a woman sharing her story of how she'd been sexually abused when she was young and then read this verse and talked about forgiving. See, this is a verse that it's all throughout the scripture. And a lot of times we don't like to see it. We just want to receive forgiveness. And so we don't want to deal with this giving of forgiveness thing. But in the same sermon, a little bit earlier, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7, blessed are those who are merciful. They will receive mercy. The people who are merciful are the ones who receive mercy. Because the ones who have received mercy are naturally merciful. James says it like this. In James chapter 2 and verse 13, it's the same thing. Just stated a different way. Because judgment without mercy 
So God's going to judge without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 25. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. There's a, right in chapter 5 under the section on murder, we read earlier, chapter 5, verses 20 through 22, right in there. In that section, there's a statement there where it says, if you're worshiping God and you're at the altar and you remember there's something between you and another follower of Jesus Christ, leave your gift at the altar. Otherwise, you're making a mockery of God's forgiveness by worshiping him when you won't forgive someone. Go and deal with it. And so I'll challenge you right now. If you've got something with somebody in this church, go deal with it right now while I'm preaching. Get up. They're in the video of any, go there. They're working on bridge. Go there. Deal with the stuff. And then it says, then you come back and then you worship. That's how seriously God takes this. Matthew chapter 18, verse 35 says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you. And Jesus has just told a story where there's a man who's being beaten by prison guards for all of eternity. And this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. And stated in the positive way in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 The Apostle Paul writes, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Just as lavishly, unconditionally, with an unlimited amount. That Matthew chapter 18 verse that I read to you is uh, interestingly told at the end of a story right after Peter, who's one of Jesus' main guys, Peter, James, and John, real close with Jesus. And he comes up to Jesus, and he sounds like he's trying to impress Jesus, like he's being a hot shot. Says Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven, <laughs> seven times. I'll forgive seven times. Put that down, Jesus. So the Father knows about this one. I'll, for, I'll forgive seven times. And Jesus says, oh, seven times. If that's how many times you're sinned against, or seventy times if you're sinned against seventy times, or seventy times seven times if that's how many times you're sinned against, or seven bazillion times if that's how many times you're sinned against. You sin as mu- you forgive as much as you've been sinned against. That's how you've been forgiven. And then Jesus tells a story. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like, it's a made-up story to teach a spiritual truth. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who goes to settle accounts. And he called in a guy who had a huge debt. He owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is the largest sum of money that they had in that time period. 10,000 was a word that was used to symbolically, it'd be like us saying infinity, an infinite amount of money. It's an innumerable number, 10,000 for them. And so basically what Jesus said was, there's this guy who comes and he owes more than the national debt. Put that into perspective, which is going like this right now, I think. He owes a gazillion dollars. He made up a number, 10,000 talents. And he stands before this king and the king says, "Um, you can't pay. So we're going to sell your wife. We're going to sell your kids. We're going to sell your stuff to start paying back this debt. The guy falls down on his knees and begs the king for more time is what he asked for. The king goes beyond what this guy could ask or imagine and doesn't give him more time. He says, I'll cancel the debt. He didn't just look the other way. He didn't just let it go. The king's paying for it. And then he sends the guy out. And what ironically happens next is he sees someone who owes him money, a hundred denarii, the passage says. That's three months wages. I've heard pastors talk about this before and call it like 10 bucks. It's not 10 bucks. Three months wages, you can put that into your own world. It's a significant amount of money. Some of you have been sinned against in a significant way that brings a lot of pain. But it's nothing in comparison to the national debt. And so this guy grabs the guy that owes him three months wages, shakes him, has him put in prison. And then other people see this and they realize how much that guy's been forgiven and they're upset. So they go back to the king and the king calls him back in and the king is angry, it says. And the king throws him into prison to be tortured until he can pay back the debt, which is never 
It's an infinite amount that he owes. He says, and that's how your father views it when we don't forgive. So who do you need to forgive? Who's wronged you? Who are the people? Maybe it's a neighbor. It's a neighbor who drives on your lawn or gets mud in your driveway or does something you don't like. Maybe it's a friend. I made a list to help us think about it. You may already know. But maybe a spouse for their harsh words or neglect or selfishness or repeated sin that hurts your heart. Maybe uh, your mom who you hoped would be a certain way and she wasn't. Maybe your dad who's absent or angry or abusive or maybe let you down and you still hold that against them. Maybe your parent and it's your kids. They don't call or they don't listen or they don't care or they've hurt you in some way with their words or their behavior. Maybe a friend who didn't meet your expectations, didn't show up for something, didn't write happy birthday on your Facebook status page, didn't call, didn't do something you hoped they would do. Maybe it's a coworker who took credit for your work. Maybe it's a boss who overlooks your work. Maybe it's a coach who wouldn't play you. Maybe it's a church member here at this church. Remember, go deal with it. Maybe it's a church member from another church, and there was a split, and you know they caused it. Or there's a difficulty, there's a betrayal, or you look to them as a godly mentor, and they let you down. Maybe it's someone who's passed away. Maybe it's a contractor who did work on your house. You paid them and they never finished the work. Maybe it's a salesperson who ripped you off. Maybe it's a homeowner's association that you think is against you. Perhaps it's a homeowner that you bought a house from and you know that they know about the problems that were there and they didn't tell you. Maybe it's a business deal where they slanted the table in their favor. Maybe it's a gossip who got your secret. Wrong person got your information. Maybe it's a person who cussed you out. Maybe it's a betrayal that happened, someone you trusted. Maybe it's the person who used you for their own personal gain. They were so manipulative. You thought they loved you. You thought they cared for you. You thought they were your friend or someone special in your life, and you realized you were being used. Maybe it's your ex-spouse who you barely even talk to. Maybe it's your uncle who caused so much pain. Maybe it's an aunt. Maybe it's a niece. Maybe it's a nephew. Maybe it's a cousin. Maybe it's a sibling. Who do you have to forgive? Forgiven people must forgive people. If you've been forgiven, you must forgive. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, but I can't. In this situation, it's God, if you knew, and how can I? And I had some people knew that I was going to be speaking on forgiveness this week. I had some people write me and, and tell me their struggles on Facebook and emails and how they couldn't. And every, everyone that I talked to about that is the same answer. So if it's you, it's the same answer. Do you know how much you've been forgiven? I'd say it'd be easy. It's actually supernatural. But God commands us to do it, to forgive the way that we've been forgiven. Ephesians 4.32, that we pray, God, forgive us as we forgive, so that we would then forgive the way that Christ forgives us, lavishly, unlimited, unconditionally. And some people tell me stories about how they did forgive and how they've been given the ability to forgive and how miraculous it's been in their lives. Read about forgiveness stories this week. Some of you maybe have heard about the Rwanda genocide that took place back in 1994. Crazy, if you haven't read that, it's just amazing what happened. Because 800,000 people were killed in 100 days. Over 800,000 people. Actually, some people say 850. But 800,000 people in 100 days. And that wasn't because of some military invasion. It was neighbors killing neighbors. It's two people groups that had a hatred for one another. And now it's over and they're living together again. How does that happen? Well, one story I saw a video of was a man who talked about how he came to Christ after that. And he went to a woman who he had killed her husband and killed her son, killed her daughter. And he went and with a machete, by the way. This wasn't some mass, you know, military activity. These people were killing each other with machetes. And so this guy went to this woman and said, I killed your husband. 
I killed your son with a machete. I killed your young daughter. Will you forgive me? And then the woman in the video says, God forgives you, so do I. And I look at that and think, I don't know that I could do that. I'm going to put in that situation the need to. If God can do that, he can certainly allow me to forgive. He can allow you to forgive. There are all kinds of forgiveness stories. One of them was sent to me by a woman in this church. She told me I could use her name and tell her story. And her name was Nancy. Nancy talked about before she came to Southbridge, she never forgave anyone. In fact, her email started with, uh, if anyone ever wronged me, we were done. And she told me her story about with her dad when she was young. She was a young kid. Her dad abandoned them and left her in a difficult situation with mom, who was an alcoholic. It was a violent situation. She said, I held that against dad for years. One Sunday, I came to Southbridge. It was a Father's Day. She said, I snuck into, the, you know, she slid into the video venue because she didn't want to be around anybody. Different people go to the video venue for different reasons. She went in there because she wanted to get in the spot where she didn't have to sit by anybody. And then hear a message to fathers. She said, when the message was over with, it was like God just supernaturally washed over her. And in that moment, took those burdens from her and allowed her to forgive. Supernaturally gave her the ability to forgive. She went to his gravesite, visited the gravesite. She, she also began to forgive other people in her life. She'd been married uh, before that situation. And for seven years, they were married. At seven years, the husband came and told her that he was having an affair, cheating on her. So they were done. They got a divorce. And about two years of counseling, but they got a divorce. And uh, she said she couldn't forgive him. She held that for 30 years, she told me. Then when God showed her about her own forgiveness, her need to forgive, she forgave him. Face to face, she told him. She forgave him. What do you need to forgive? Nancy's a real person. She goes to our church. Um, she's a leader in our Celebrate Recovery ministry, by the way, which meets on Thursday nights, every Thursday night at 7 o'clock. You're struggling to forgive someone. I suggest you go there and meet Nancy. I'll just tell you more of her story. See, you can do this because of what Christ's done for you, and he empowers you to then be able to do the things he commands us to do. Now, some of you feel like if I forgive someone, that I'm telling them what they did was okay. I'm looking the other way. I'm letting them get away with it. I'm just letting it go. That's not what's happening. What you're saying when you forgive someone is, what you did, it's not bigger than the cross. It's because what you and I did isn't bigger than the cross. We can't out the cross. We can't sin more than he's forgiven us. And so what people do against us, it can't be more than what Jesus accomplished on the cross. See, it's one of those things, easy to receive, hard to give. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we ask that you'd forgive us. We all need forgiveness. And Father, I pray specifically right now for those who need to trust your son, Jesus Christ, as Savior, who need to experience your forgiveness in the first place. And I'll just, I'll just pause and I want to speak to you. Those of you who are praying right now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, um, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you shouldn't even be praying this prayer because the prayer starts off with our Father. And, and He's not your Father if you don't know Jesus Christ. You're a Father of the devil, you are a Father of the a child of wrath. It's when you place your faith in Jesus Christ that John chapter 1 tells us that he gives us the right to be called children of God. We get adopted into his family. Before that point, you can't even pray this prayer. You're definitely calling a curse down upon yourself. And you need forgiveness. You know it. He knows it. What you need to do is just acknowledge it to him, confess it to him, and say, God, forgive me of my sin. Maybe even name in your sin in your heart as you talk to him. And ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior because your sin's not bigger than the cross. And he can forgive you. And ask him to be your Savior right now. 
And some of us, we know Jesus is our Savior, but we still need forgiveness because that relationship gets broken. Father, will you please forgive us? We confess our sin to you, and we know that you are faithful, and you are just, and you will cleanse us. Will you cleanse us? Will you wash over us? Will you have us sense your presence right now? And Father, there are some of us that need to forgive. Maybe somebody on that list that I've read, or maybe somebody else, and some people that have even passed away that we need to forgive. We forgive in our hearts. And for some of us, we need to make a phone call. Some of us, you need to give us courage to have a coffee meeting. And some of us need to set up a, an appointment of some sort where we forgive someone. Father, will you embolden us to obey? Will you give us courage to be more and more like you? Thank you for giving us. Thank you for loving us. We lay everything at your cross. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.